Rise and shine for true crime comedy time. Welcome back to My Second Self and I, the only podcast where the host pretends to be two different people and it works somehow. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Alex. That's Alex. He's the voice in my head and yours sometimes. You never know what he's going to come up with. Hoping everyone who had a chance to listen to The Butcher of Hanover and the bonus Candyman episodes on Halloween weekend enjoyed those. Hopefully you've also recovered enough to get some more dark and silly humor forced into your ears. Hi, that's what we do here. Also hope everyone enjoyed their Halloween parties and costume contests. I didn't get invited to anything this year, but I just told everyone I was the bad guy from the Alvin and the Chipmunks movie. Because people ask me all the time, Hey, do you know who you look like? Next time you see a bald white guy, ask him that question. Just see what he says. That's the one I get the most, the bad guy from Alvin and the Chipmunks, so if you were curious, well, there you go. Thanks, David Cross. And not that he'll ever hear this, but... I've got it on pretty good authority from several reputable sources that I might be a good stunt double. I'm just saying. I have to get this out. Hold on. Here's the thing about being bald that's given me the most confusion, though. A few years ago, I was working at a different restaurant in a different part of the city, but I was still shiny on top. Part of the uniform for that place was a hat. A trucker hat that you could see through so if you so you can still see the back of that person's head. If you see a bald guy wearing a hat, you can pretty easily tell in most cases, even from the back, that it's a bald guy wearing a hat. Even from a distance, it's fairly obvious. So imagine my confusion at this lady that I waited on that night, who was now sitting within arm's reach of me, has had plenty of time to observe what I just told you. I'd been very present at that table because they were needy. And still looks at me, paused for a second, says, hey, you know, has anyone ever told you you look like Luke Bryan? Excuse me, what? Ma'am? I wanted to tell her to pull her phone out real quick and do a Google search. Do you know what Luke Bryan looks like? I don't even have a comb. And he's handsome. Moving on from my shiny dome, I chose this case today because I wanted to just eat some turkey and get Thanksgiving over with so I can feel acceptable singing Christmas songs in public again. And because I wanted to start off the holiday season with something wild and crazy, but not nearly as graphic and just gross that the last two cases we covered were like. This one will be a good palate cleanser. November shows no signs of slowing down in terms of wild stories to tell, and it's becoming a little easier for me to think of ways to be more immersive and keep everything moving along in a fun way. Speaking of moving along with it, let's move along with the part of the show where I try to bribe you to get reviews and feedback. If I make you laugh today, or if you dislike how I tell stories, drop some feedback wherever you can. Five stars and reviews will help people find the show, and that will help motivate me to work harder on creating new shows for you. And if you aren't able to do that for some reason, just tell a couple friends, or better yet, scream it at a hipster in Whole Foods or wherever they congregate nowadays. And I will definitely see it. The payroll system I'm looking at shows only one employee listed for all departments, and their current salary is um, $0 annually, and I know that guy is gunning for a promotion. And regarding the phone call that made its way into the Candyman episode. Look, I get it. I left it in because I forgot that it happened, and it made me laugh when I heard it again during editing. And it was a bonus episode anyway. But I do know how distracting that would be under normal circumstances. Just wanted to let you know. I'm hyper aware of all the little technical things like that that sometimes make their way in. Okay, moving on to the show now. No other updates on anything or audience begging to do. I chose this case today because, like I said, I needed a palate cleanser. And this case just made me think of King of the Hill. This whole thing is like if Dale was actually capable of murder. If you're familiar, don't add any extra competency to Dale's character. It's more like when Dale thought he had rabies and just kept eating magic mushrooms in the woods. That's the guy we're going to be talking about today. New listeners, hang on. Yes, I talk about true crime on this show, but first and foremost, this is a comedy show. I'm trying to make you laugh. Wait a minute, Matt. Are you going to tell me we're going to laugh in the presence of a murder? No, I'm telling you we're going to laugh in the presence of two murders, and here's why. It's very simple. Murder is uncomfortable. And in uncomfortable situations, you can either laugh about it, get angry about it, or cry about it. And I think laughing is the most fun, as well as the most healthy outlet. For example, hey Alex, check this out. Do a, do a fake list real quick. Chairs, tables, desk, wall, carpet, plates, forks, spoons, floor, oven, microwave, cabinet. What did you do to my voice? Change it back? Yeah, isn't that cool? Maybe if we have a flashback or something, I can let you do those. 
I make no promises to use this power responsibly, and it's gone. Maybe you won't, but I'm trying to act like a professional over here. Alright, let's whoosh into this. This one's pretty straightforward. Very straightforward. Though there is a lot of division regarding the outcome of the trial. Let me ask you something. What do you do if someone breaks into your home? Do you call the police and try to hide until either the police arrive or the intruder leaves? Or do you shoot first and ask questions later? I personally don't know how to answer that. I've been fortunate enough to not have any experience to draw from. Sure, we might say in any given situation what we would do, but we can't really know for certain unless it actually happens to us. I'm not going to make any claims as to how I think I would react or how someone else should react to someone breaking into their home. I'm not putting on those shoes today. Whichever way you just answered, though, congratulations, you are correct. Depending on the laws of the state you live in, both are acceptable. What's not acceptable is, in this specific instance, how that law is applied. Castle doctrines and stand-your-ground laws and other self-defense laws serve an important purpose in society. They allow citizens to feel comfortable not only living in their home or property, but also defending it. However, this one doesn't feel like a standard breaking and entering, stand-your-ground kind of thing. It plays out more like luring someone into a trap, which is just regular murder and not self-defense. Don't misunderstand. I'm all for defending your property and having guns and whatever else within reason, I don't really care what you do, just as long as it's not what the people on this show normally do. Go do whatever you want, stay kind while you're doing it. And I do understand, at least on a basic level, the limitations of various states' castle doctrines and stand-your-ground laws. And while Minnesota has a castle doctrine in place, to me, there's a bit of a disconnect between the state's legal intent and this specific expression of it. This is kind of a weird one. Might walk away from this one feeling a little blah about it. In fact, I feel kind of bad for everyone involved here. And I don't normally like to put the killer's words out there, but this guy has some really interesting things to say, and his telling of it really does help to provide a lot of context. Speaking of providing context, let's talk a little bit about where we're going and who lives here. This is up in Minnesota, in a tiny town called Little Falls. Kind of reminds me of my hometown, if my hometown had cool shit to look at. Looking at pictures of this place, it's very green. Nestled right up against the Mississippi River, a lot of the buildings around town have that old historic look, which sometimes feels out of place, but next to the river, it fits neatly in my head for some reason. I read some reviews of this place off mic. There aren't that many, and they aren't really that funny, really. It looks like more people own their home rather than rent here, and there's currently only one house for sale, and it's cool as shit. Kind of looks like an old two-story Minnesota grandma's house. Inside needs some redecorating, but it's a cool house. Lots of nooks and crannies, big open floors, and a dope staircase. Four bedroom, two bath, 2,200 square feet, 160 grand, which is not bad at all. Too bad I'm poor and don't live anywhere near here. Not totally upset about that either, actually. It would probably be a lateral move from where I currently am, and it would also be colder, which I'm not into. Aside from hair, my body also doesn't produce much of its own heat, so my house is like a reptile tank most of the time. It also sounds exactly like where I already am, about a 50-50 mix of urban and rural, both in terms of real estate and the job market. The restaurant scene, though, holy shit, you guys, you've got it figured out over there in Little Falls. I want to know what goes on over at the Pizza Ranch. Alright, this has become my new favorite part of doing these when it's a small town I've never been to, which is a lot of them. I like reading the restaurant reviews and critiquing the customers. I've worked in the industry for close to 20 years now, and I swear I can see these people. But I've never seen a restaurant where you can get not only pizza, but also apple pie, salad, mashed potatoes, and fried chicken. Fucking count me in. I don't even care if it's bad. I'd probably never leave. That sounds great. And let's be honest, it probably is bad. It's a CC-style buffet in a town of 9,000 people. I've worked and eaten in a lot of really good restaurants. Buffet doesn't normally make the cut. And I wasn't sure if I was going to do one of these this week, but I can't not talk about this review. If you've ever worked in the restaurant industry or anywhere that you deal with customers face-to-face -face for more than about six months or so, you'll love this too, 
You've definitely dealt with this flavor of Karen before. Not you, listener Karen. You're actually cool. This is at the Pizza Ranch. It's a one-star review that takes place over exactly 18 minutes. It's very specific, and it's a book report. I also get the feeling this lady is nearing her 70th birthday, and she's not happy about it. So everything is everybody else's fault. This particular trip to this specific location on February 24th was nothing short of disastrous. We arrived at the counter at 107, did not receive any senior discount, and did not receive the $5 discount we had coming from our member's card. Who's a fucking member of a pizza buffet? Really? A group from what I believe was the technical college was sprawled out across several tables and booths. There were a few spots occupied only by a single person from this group. The only booth available hadn't been cleaned yet, but I put my coat down to claim it as others were lined up behind us looking for seating also. Why do you want to sit at the dirty table? I... I've worked in restaurants for almost 20 years, and I never understand why customers look at a dirty table and go, fucking that one. I never understand that. I poured our drinks, and the table was being wiped down when I returned to put them down. After returning from making the salad, we found no silverware, salt, pepper had been removed, and no napkins available. Even the napkin holders were empty on the table, as well as two of the food stations when I went back to the buffet to get a silverware. It wasn't there because you sat at a fucking dirty table, you idiot! I only saw one employee out on the floor who seemed overwhelmed by everything that was expected of her. Which is you. You're the one overwhelming her with your probably dumb questions. Only one of us got any chicken. A wing and a small thigh. We kept getting up and checking for more chicken as we couldn't see the buffet where we were seated and when it did come out after the short walk from the booth to the buffet table, there was only a bone from a wing and one thigh left. Only a bone in there? Really? Who did that? The student group had left already, and two of the three tables that remained occupied had been there when we arrived and had finished eating. Did the four people at the other table grab all the chicken? I can't imagine that they did that, so I have to wonder how much was put out between 107 and 125. How many people in this small town are having a late lunch to eat all the chicken in the restaurant in 18 minutes? We kept vigilant and keeping an eye out for a new batch that never came. I was just getting up to inquire as more people came to the counter to purchase the buffet. I heard the cashier tell them that the buffet ended at 1.30 and there wouldn't be more coming out. I don't know if they were offered a discount or not as I turned around and just went back to the booth. The next line makes this whole thing make even way less sense. Being lactose intolerant due to a milk and cheese allergy, selections were extremely limited. There were plenty of mashed potatoes and gravy, but that's not a meal either. Why would you go to a pizza place if you can't eat milk or cheese? And I will challenge you, mashed potatoes and gravy is a meal. I will die on that hill. We have never encountered any of these things before at any of the pizza ranches during either the lunch or supper buffets. Oh, they say supper here. I don't know the policy, so I can't speak to it specifically, but I think if you arrive here at 1 p.m. or any minute later, make sure to inquire if there will be any chicken available to your table before you pay full buffet price for only lettuce, croutons, and a drink. I want this lady to eat fast and leave faster. And I bet she's wearing a hat. You know how I feel about hat ladies in restaurants? There's, It's a thing, I promise. I don't know why it's a thing, but it's a thing. Maybe that's all that lady had to do that day. Little Falls is kind of a small town, and they don't have a whole lot to do there from what I could gather. This is sort of interesting, though. This is actually the town that Charles Lindbergh grew up in, and you can go see his house. But better hurry, because apparently it closes just before Thanksgiving, and it's only $10. Which, you know what, that actually seems fair to me. You could also go to one of the other old historic houses or museums. There's a lot of them. Or there's the Boomerang Bar, which I think is just a cool name. Is their tagline something like, you keep coming back, or anything close to that? Yeah, a bunch of sturdy Minnesotans coming back for beer and salty potato chip top cheesy casseroles. You can still count us in. Yeah, I love good casserole. There's also the Pine Grove Zoo. Fuck yeah, animals. They have at least one albino peacock, and I think an alpaca with one brown eye and one blue eye. I didn't know alpacas could be heterochromatic, and if you don't know... Heterochromia is when the iris is multicolored, and complete heterochromia is when you have two completely different colored eyes. Like a cat with one green eye and one blue eye, or Mila Kunis, or toss a coin to your witcher! Him too. I'm positive that melody's wrong, I've never seen it. Hey, why haven't we seen that? What? Dude, really? Cause fucking, we have to do this now, we don't have time for TV. 
Plus, I know I'd love it, and I really don't have room in my head right now to dedicate to an entire new fandom. Yeah, but that ass. So there's just a little bit about where we are today, and at least one of the people that lives here. I think that review lady lives here anyway, I don't know for sure. But we're going to talk about one of her maybe neighbors in this town instead. On the northern bend of the Mississippi River that cuts through town, nestled in a thick wood of pine trees, is a house. It looks like a small one-story ranch-style house from the front, but around the back it turns into a split-level kind of thing with a basement-level type subfloor. I'll try to remember to get photos up, I know I'm awful at social media shit and even worse at describing real estate. Inside this house, hanging out mainly in the weirdly carpeted basement nowadays, is a man named Byron David Smith. Mr. Smith is 64 years old, a retired Vietnam veteran, and spent most of his life overseas working for the State Department as a security engineer. If you're like me and don't know what the hell that is, I found out for all of us, and I will tell you. A security engineer, kind of like an internet cop. They resolve problems with IT software and equipment, install firewalls, implement breach detection systems. Basically, they're in charge of installing complicated network security protocols to a company's network infrastructure and keeping out unwanted intruders that may want to harm that network. In his case, being that he worked for the State Department, his role was more aimed at detecting and subverting threats from international espionage and terrorism. Where his house is situated, he isn't really very physically close to a lot of his neighbors. Many of which who are annoyed by his regular afternoon pastimes, he liked to just shoot guns in the backyard, which is kind of strange behavior. Maybe into the river, maybe into the ground, maybe at that fish in the river because Tommy's rumbling. Sources aren't clear, just that there were complaints of gunfire. Or maybe it was at that ratchet-ass squirrel that knocked over our basil plant the other day. Oh yeah, I got my eye out for Terry, don't worry. Terry is a nuisance rodent near my home. I'll fill you in on him another day. Whatever he was shooting at didn't seem to bother at least one of his neighbors, though. A William Anderson, or Bill as I'm going to call him, they seem to have had a fairly cordial relationship. Later on in court, Bill would say, Byron Smith is one of the nicest gentlemen you're ever going to meet. If one of you people would have a flat tire in front of the courthouse today, that gentleman would go and buy you a new tire and send you on your way. I'm going to say it right now. Byron will not have conducted himself in a manner befitting a gentleman by the end of this story. Oh, okay. And I have to imagine, after the life he's led up to this point, he's seen his fair share of unusual shit. I've seen a good amount of it myself within just a thousand mile radius of where I'm from and live now. This man has lived all over the world. He's been to Bangkok, Cairo, Moscow, Beijing, and was in charge of around 50 people during those times, and in his line of work, probably see some weird shit. Who knows what kind of potential threats you'd have to look out for in those places. Cyber terrorists or black hat hackers trying to inject a line of SQL code to destroy an important financial database for some division of the State Department, or maybe something way less sinister and more akin to a Nigerian scammer type of ransomware attack. I have $8 million left to me by wealthy relative, but internet account hacked and now flood computer with naked girl. You open email, how stupid. Now you have Naked Girl Window 2 send taxes for wire transfer I send virus cure. But he's not a very experienced scammer and got confused on which text window to use, so that's the title of the email. I really hope that happened. One thing I know for certain Byron has seen a lot of is people breaking into his house and stealing all of his expensive shit. After the life he's lived, fighting in the Vietnam War, Dealing with cyber terrorists, that idiot Mark who just can't seem to remember his password. Fucking get it together, Mark! He retires from the State Department in 2006 and moves back to Little Falls. He's ready to slide comfortably into retirement and finally relax in his childhood home. He wanted to just look at his father's World War II medals in the comfortable home that had been left to him after his father passed and read his books in his weird basement that has carpet. There's a problem, though. There's just a couple of kids that live in this town. Haley Kiefer, who is 18 and Nicholas Brady, her cousin, who was 17. They'd been having a bit of a rough go of it in life. Lately, they'd taken to breaking into houses and stealing whatever they could find to go pawn for what I'm guessing was probably crank money. Haley was a senior in high school, shoulder-length, chestnut, brown hair, pretty face, very active on the swim team, and her coach spoke highly of her, said she would love making people happy, which, hey, me too. If I do something for you in real life, just know... I honestly don't want you to do anything for me in return. Just let it happen. 
Nicholas had very short, either dark brown or maybe black hair, I can't tell. Kind of a goofy looking kid. Doesn't say anywhere, but I'm seeing him as kind of a tall, lanky kind of kid. You know, the kid that's really skinny, but can eat a quadruple decker, double bacon, ultra mega chili cheese hunger crusher burger in like 34 seconds. There's a ton of that kid in my town, and probably this one too. Not a bad kid per se, probably just bored and confused about life. This is just my input. He's got a ton of energy and probably has no idea what to do with it all. Then he finds out drugs are easy to get and they work. And an easy way to get them quickly is to burgle. So he puts all his energy into that. Then it worked once and he kept doing it. Probably convinced cousin Haley to team up with him a little bit later on. I couldn't find much on home life for Haley when she was younger. But I imagine from what I can see in her family's testimony, it was a bit more stable than Nick's. His grandparents said they ran a foster care home out of their house when Nick was a child, and in total, they had about 150 kids come and go, and Nick was almost a permanent fixture in that home. So I might be kind of close with my thought a second ago. And if you don't currently or have never lived in a small town, it's pretty boring. A lot of the time, there isn't usually a lot going on. Belle Biv DeVoe is going to be at the Cynthia Woods this weekend, which is super surprising. I didn't know they were still touring. But that's the only thing going on this weekend, and um, we're under a tornado watch. Watch, it's not going to fucking happen. So I guess it's either do that, or do what these kids and many other kids in small towns tend to do when there's nothing going on, which is um, a lot of dangerous drugs. It's a small town of less than 9,000 people, and unless it's the first Thursday of the month, you can't even attend the monthly open mic. And the best restaurant in town is apparently likely to run out of food in about 20 minutes, and the only table in there to sit at is dirty. Fuck it, what are some drugs to do? This place sucks. I want to be up there and right here at the same time. Pass me that needle. Or whatever it was they were doing. Little places like this, probably some bathtub crank or maybe some meth and some weed. Maybe some pills here and there. The medical examiner report later on just says dextromethorphan, cough syrup, and weed. So they was at least sipping on some lean, for sure. That's our little cast of characters today. Now that we have our introductions out of the way, we can talk about what happened. On October 27th, 2012, somebody broke into the home of our friend Byron. Byron, I forgot to mention, kinda looks like a great value Christopher Walken. He's got that thousand yard stare and creepy kinda half slack jawed grin and greasy looking slick back disheveled and somehow tall hair. Somebody broke into his home on this day and stole, according to him, around $10,000 worth of property including a bunch of his dad's war medals, some electronics, some cash, and perhaps the most alarming thing, a shotgun. Oh shit. I'm slightly uncertain if this break-in was also Haley and Nick, but stats do support the possibility of it being true. I looked up burglary stats because I love stats and a home being broken into multiple times by the same robber. Not uncommon. Only 12% of robberies are planned in advance. Most robberies are spur-of-the-moment things with little preparation. Most break-ins only last about 10 minutes. About 65% of burglars are previously acquainted with the people they rob. Amazingly, one in three house burglary victims is a repeated burgling, with about half of those happening again after just one month. And maybe this one explains that first stat a little deeper. 88% of burglars burgle to support an ongoing drug habit. I like the word burgle. And while Byron never actually reported the incident, he claimed to have been the victim of multiple break-ins, and he's starting to become a little bit uneasy about living there. Again, can't say for certain if it was Nick and Haley, but maybe? Was his house hard to get to? Not really. There weren't many close neighbors, and his back porch backs right up to the river, but there's no fence or a gate or anything like that. So you'd have to be pretty close to it to see if there was anything of value inside. Right. Whoever this was probably took a stroll around the outside of the house casing the joint for a while while he was out and about one day, maybe looking for chicken at the pizza ranch, saw some shiny stuff through the window, and... Well, I'm almost out of meth! So what does Byron do? Initially, a normal response to a fearful situation. He buys and installs a security system to monitor his home, both while present and away. I have to admit, I do find it odd this guy didn't have a security system already in place. That was literally his job for his entire life. Maybe not quite the same thing, but still involves security protocols. This is around the time he starts making me think of Dale a little bit. 
And he's just about as jumpy a character as Dale is, too, because fear is a strange thing. Fear is a natural human response to both real and imagined danger, and involves a universal biochemical response as well as a high individual emotional response. In other words, the emotional and physical response to fear is the same for everyone, but the thing that induces fear is different. Everybody has different fears and phobias. For example, I'm terrified of dark water. The thought of being suspended in an environment I'm not well equipped to move easily in, while also not being able to fucking see, is goddamn terrifying. And this isn't really a fear of mine, but something did happen to me a few days ago that kind of weirded me out a little bit. Fans of the show already know and are probably a little disappointed that I don't really sleep as well or as often as I should. And one night, I took a skin-melting shower around midnight instead of going to bed. Fans of this show will also know how fond I am of weed, and this night was no different. It had been a long day, I was exhausted from dealing with incompetent hospital staff, and I just wanted to get in the shower and almost give myself some first-degree burns and relax. And then I saw a shadow. Believe me when I tell you, nothing makes you need more weed faster than being in the shower, completely naked, at midnight, looking over and seeing the silhouette of a four-inch-long tree roach in the shower curtain lining, I froze for about 45 seconds underneath the shower head, so the water isn't even hitting me anymore, so now I'm fucking cold, too. Then I just shut the water off, stepped out of the shower, and assaulted the bunched-up curtain with a towel until I felt comfortable I'd scared the thread away. Then I smoked until my eyes hurt again in the comfort of my reptile tank closet studio. I think perhaps Byron would have benefited from marijuana's therapeutic properties. But based on the reviews I read, I'm guessing many older residents of the town weren't really cool with weed just yet then. And at first, he seems to react normally to a break-in. A security system is a good investment, especially if you've already been the victim of a home invasion. However, it doesn't stop at the security system. Byron also leans pretty hard into his fear and paranoia going the other direction, and begins carrying a pistol and a holster on his belt at all times, even when he's at home. Here's another really interesting thing about fear. A fear trigger varies from person to person, but so does the response to a fearful situation. When a person experiences fear or a dangerous situation, the frontal lobe and prefrontal cortex slide back into the back seat and your brain rewires the neuron highway to go straight to the amygdala. That's the part of your brain that processes our emotions. And for my dorky gamer listeners, also one of my favorite boss designs in Bloodborne, right after Murgo's wet nurse. Our brain's role, or Alex's role in my case when we uh. aren't doing this, is to make split-second decisions about what to do in order to keep us both safe. Oh, yeah. And when someone has a history of trauma, what? their brain might be more likely to activate the fear response in anticipation of future danger. What are we doing? You're nailing it over there. Response to fear can be broken down into four basic categories. Flight, fight, freeze, and fawn. Fight, pretty self-explanatory. That thing isn't taking me out. I'll punch it and or scream at it until it goes away. Flight, nope, I'm out. Freeze, remember the shower roach. Why the fuck else would I bring that up? Wait until the danger passes. Fawn, this one was a new nug of info for me. This is when you try to please whatever's causing the fear response and prevent it from causing harm. Like telling a bank robber he's handsome so he lets you go. Okay, sure. Fear is also said to be anger in disguise, but it also, also isn't always logical. Let's look at a few common phobias. Some are scary, some are just silly. Ablutophobia, fear of bathing. Acluophobia, fear of the dark. Aerophobia is a fear of flying. Angrophobia, fear of anger. Some of these just seem like an inside joke. Entomophobia, fear of insects, like roaches. Bibliophobia, fear of books, really? Oh, hey, other artists, here's one we've definitely all experienced at one time or another. Cataglophobia, the fear of being ridiculed. Speaking of which, this will be the first episode I upload to YouTube, so leave some feedback in the comments, would you? Yeah, come on, you know you're not doing anything right now. You're just doom-scrolling right now anyway, Brandon. Coolerophobia, fear of clowns. Not afraid of them, but I'm also not volunteering to be anywhere near them either. Just a couple more and we'll get back to it, and these are just silly. Dentophobia, dentists, fear of dentists. Erotophobia, fear of sex. Again, really? Who's out there going, 
Oh god, get these titties and vaginas away from me, no! I feel bad for that person, I really do. Hydrophobia is the fear of water. And my favorite one, gonna try to nail this on the first try. Hippopotamonstra sesquipedaliophobia, fear of long words. Fucking nailed it! Psychologists are assholes with a sense of humor, I guess. Alright, back to the story. Here's the scene at Byron's house. He's installed security systems and cameras all around the outside of the house, and he's got a monitoring system set up in the basement level so he can keep an eye out for any potential threats. Meanwhile, he's just down there sitting in his chair with a gun on his hip, reading books, probably about old ships or something, I don't know. The last break-in was on October 27th, and before that, a handful of other times. The most recent break-in was the one that prompted Mr. Smith to purchase the cameras and put them all over the house. If somehow an intruder should breach the perimeter, it's okay though, because he has a gun on his hip, and if someone breaks into his house, asterisk, the law is on his side. Alex, hit the button! Jesus, okay, God. This is where I start to get lost a little bit on following Byron's steps in logic. He lives alone. He has installed cameras everywhere that he can look at from the safety of his basement, which only has one entry point. He carries a gun around all the time, just in case, which I guess is why you would carry one, but not usually in your own home, I don't think. He's been the victim of robberies before, hadn't been sleeping well because of it, and that probably didn't help the fear and anxiety that comes with it. But he has an idea who might be behind it. Court documents only call her A.W., so I don't know her actual name. We'll go with Aria. That's a local dog near me that I see when I check the mail. Remember Bill from the beginning? In court documents, they say W.A., which I'm pretty sure is William Anderson because I have eyes. So Bill tells Dale, I mean, he tells Byron that he thinks old Aria from across the strip been had an eye on you from that corner window. And Byron says, Thanks for your input, Bill, but I already knew that because I have four eyes, and my four eyes tell me my four cameras saw her four times just yesterday. That's 16 times more than you ever saw. I'm just saying you might want to keep an eye out, you know, just in case. And Dalron cuts him off. I've got it! It's the perfect plan! I'll set up a trap, luring them into my house, and when they break in, I'll be waiting in my basement to ambush them. I'll even take out all the light bulbs in the ceiling to give myself a tactical advantage. But Dale, how will you see if anything if there's no light bulbs? You're right. Hmm. No matter. If I can't see, they can't see either. The plan it is then! Sounds like something you'd see in an episode of King of the Hill, right? Well, aside from telling anybody about what he planned on doing about the break-ins, that's exactly what's about to happen. He had briefly talked with his neighbor Bill and suspected that his across-the-street neighbor might be watching him as he comes and goes, but he didn't tell anybody his plan, I don't think. Which brings us to Thanksgiving Day 2012. It's a cold, snowy holiday in Minnesota. Byron, around 10.30 in the morning, goes out front and starts talking with Bill. About what, we don't know. But then a few minutes into the conversation, they see a car drive by, and it's his across-the-street neighbor, Aria. His eyes narrow and follow the car as she drives by. Byron finishes up whatever conversation he'd been having with Bill, and excuses himself to go back inside. Plus, it's fucking cold out here. About an hour later, Byron can be seen backing his truck out of the driveway and driving away down the street. Where did he go? One of the, like, four tea gives dinners people usually go to? No. He drove his truck a few blocks away around the corner and left it parked in front of two state troopers' house. I'm guessing the cars were in the driveway. He walks back to his house, approaching from the side facing the river instead of the front door. He arrives back at home around 11.45 a.m. and gets himself ready for the day. Around noon, and I still can't figure out why he did this, he turns on a digital audio tape recorder. Much of the audio from this is widely available on the internet. If you choose to listen, it's pretty disturbing, and I'm not going to be playing it for you here. Oh, thank God. So he turns on the recorder, loads his 9-shot 22 caliber revolver, as well as his Ruger 14 mini rifle, which is 5 shots, grabs a water bottle, some snacks, a book that may or may not be about old ships, and settles into the upholstered chair at the bottom of the stairs in the shoddily carpeted basement. And then he starts talking to himself. He starts saying some really odd shit. A little over 17 minutes into the recording, Byron said, Uh, stop by tomorrow morning. No rush, but as soon as convenient. Can you do that? 
Yeah, park to the north, 100 feet north. 100 yards north of the corner, walk in from the west. About 23 minutes into the audio recording, Byron said, I realize I don't have an appointment, but I would like to see one of the lawyers here. Okay, what he's doing here, I think, is rehearsing what he wants to say to the police. In the event that the trap he just set by moving his truck out of the driveway is successful, he needs to prepare for the possibility of having that conversation. He's doing that thing where you put yourself in an imaginary situation and you invent a perfect back-and-forth scenario with the dialogue. It's the reverse of the, oh shit, I should have said that instead, thing that we all do. Or like when you're trying to figure out how to ask out your crush and how they might react, you flip through every possible scenario, but you tend to work through the best possible outcome the most, the one you want to happen. So this is what he wants to happen, which is disturbing. Haley and Nick are also out on the roads doing stuff that day. I don't know what, but we can probably imagine something pretty close. It's a snowy day, and it's tea gives, so nobody's on the roads, and I'm sure a lot of people are out of town. We already know they've been sipping on some lean and smoking a bit of Buddha, but it's not time for Thanksgiving dinner yet. We always had an early Thanksgiving dinner, like one in the afternoon in my family for some reason. Why is that dinner time? I guess you need the extra time to digest everything. And I can't wait to eat so much turkey in a few weeks. But Haley and Nick aren't ready to eat yet. They've got other plans. Whatever their preferred mind-altering substance was, they needed more money to get it, and on Thanksgiving, when no one is home, it's the perfect time to case a house and see what you can get. That's not burglary advice, by the way. Don't... don't burgle. Then at 12.33, Nick approaches the house and looks in the windows, sees that nobody's home, tries the front door, but it's locked, then goes around to the back side of the house and smashes a window in the back bedroom to gain entry. Byron is perched down in the basement in his chair watching this and he sees the shadow of Nick walking by pass in front of the little picture window. Then he hears glass shattering. Nick makes his way through the house into the basement door. He opens the door and begins to walk down the steps. Byron sees his feet, then his knees, then his hips, then he fires the mini Ruger 14 rifle into Nick's chest. He never saw his hands. He shoots him a second time. Nick falls down the stairs, tumbles to the bottom, and in the process, he loses his shoes. He fucking shot him out of his shoes. I cannot get over how ridiculous that is. Every time I read it, I, I, I have to pause on it. He falls to the bottom of the stairs and lands lying face up. He rolls around and groans. The darkness just shot him twice, and I'm sure it was loud as fuck in that tiny basement stairwell, so he's holding his ears, too. And Byron walks up three seconds after hitting the floor and shoots him again. The bullet would exit through his palm and enter into his skull, killing him. Jesus Christ. That's why I think he was probably holding his ears or something close to that position. What the fuck, man? I know, this is goddamn horrible, man. Byron grabs his shoes from the stairs, pulls Nick's body onto a tarp, and drags the tarp into the other room where the camera monitors are. And then he reloaded. He sits back down in his chair, and his adrenaline is pumping. He just murdered a 17-year-old, for God's sakes. Then he hears another noise. It's Haley. She has entered the house now, too, and is calling out for Nick. She gets to the basement, opens the door, and a very similar series of events takes place, but this one is way worse. Heads up. Oh, God. She starts down the stairs, and just like with Nick, as soon as Byron sees her hips, he fires. She immediately tumbles down the stairs. Byron tries to fire a second time, but the gun jams. What a shit rifle if it jams after four rounds. As this is happening, Byron says, Oh, sorry about that. While Haley can be heard saying, Oh my god! Obviously, she's just been shot. Then he pulls out his revolver and shoots her again. And again. And again. Then he says, You're dying. Shoots her again. Calls her a bitch for some reason. Then drags her body off into the other room and lays her on top of Nick. And there's a groan. She's still alive. And this is super disgusting and disturbing and whatever else you want to call it. He'd admit later to police, quote, As much as I hate someone, I don't think they deserve pain. So I gave her a good clean shot up under the chin. I did a good clean finishing shot. He fucking shot her under the chin, dude. What, what the, the fuck, fuck? I'm oh so God. disgusted Holy with this asshole. Holy oh shit. God. Now what? 
Two teenagers break into your house after you set a trap for a completely different person. You murder them in your basement. So now it's time to call the police and confess, right? Right. Almost. What? Byron, instead, decides to just sit there in silence, in darkness, because he took all the fucking light bulbs out. It must not have been that dark of a basement, I guess. Maybe those windows let in enough light to see. But he just sits there for five hours, probably not more than ten feet away from the bodies of two children he just murdered for no reason. He's talking to himself a lot. And, oh yeah, the tape recorder's still on. Here's some of the very disturbing and very incriminating things he said while talking to himself. I'm not going to do his voice on these. I don't want to anymore. I left my house by 11.30. They were dead by one. Of course I'm safe now. Cute. I'm sure she thought she was a real pro. You're dead. Was he repeating it to himself? What is that? I'm not a bleeding heart liberal. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess. Not like spilled food. Not like vomit, not even like diarrhea, the worst possible mess, and I was stuck with it. And these next two really kind of say a lot about what might be going on in his head. In some tiny little respect, I was doing my civic duty. If the law enforcement system couldn't handle it, I had to do it. I had to do it. Then he says this. They weren't human. I don't see them as human. I see them as vermin, social mistakes, social problems. This bitch was going to go through her life destroying things for other people. Thieving, robbing, drug use. And he rambles on in the basement like that for five hours before I guess the recorder died or ran out of battery. And he doesn't even call the cops until the next day, a full 24 hours later. Wait a minute, what? But let's rewind a second and unpack some of that really fucked up shit he just said. Of course, I'm safe now. You were never in any actual danger, though. You had two loaded guns nearby one of which was on you, and you could clearly see any approaching intruders from the cameras you had surrounding the perimeter of your house. Cute. I'm sure she thought she was a real pro. Dude, she was a senior in high school. Not trying to poke fun at her or anything, but high school kids aren't pro-anything usually. Unless it's a pro pain in the ass, or like an eating contest maybe, or jumping off of stuff, or jerking it. That's the only four things high schoolers are good at. When he says he was doing his civic duty and cleaning up a mess. Murdering two children isn't a part of any civic duty I've ever heard of. And I think he's confused a bit on what the definition of a mess is because he just created two huge ones for himself. He said he doesn't see them as human, but as vermin. An insect that most people wouldn't think twice about. Just social mistakes. Holy shit, Hank. Dale finally snapped and he's just killed Connie and Joseph. Jesus Christ. They were confused, bored teenagers who probably just wanted to get a little extra high that day because of all the awesome Thanksgiving food. I guarantee you there was at least three different cheesy casseroles at one of the dinners they were supposed to go to. And sure, they may have gone through life struggling to get clean. It happens to a lot of people, but they didn't even have a chance to figure out what life even really was yet. They were 18 and 17. All because this asshole Byron having to deal with constant looming threats of national security for decades probably didn't leave a lot of room in his head for the smaller picture. Any kind of threat, no matter how severe, must be handled as if it required top-secret clearance. So he can design and implement complicated and complex infrastructure to protect government buildings for one of the biggest superpowers in the world, yet he can't figure out how to keep two bored teenagers twigged out on purple drank and dirt weed out of his own house? First of all, sir, I commend you on your stupidity for leaving the audio recorder on so we can all hear this later and talk about it. And second, he also mentioned the law enforcement system not being equipped to handle this, but at any point in this story today, you could have done what I'm sure many of you have noticed has not happened yet. Call the fucking cops! Not one time in this story is there mention of contacting the police until literally right now. And he had a lot of time to figure out a way to not do what he did. So 24 hours goes by, and he finally calls the cops. Then he calls Bill and says, Find me a lawyer. I've solved the problems with the break-ins. You didn't even shoot the person you thought broke in a month ago, dude. Idiot. Anyway, the cops show up the next day. As they arrive, Byron comes out of the house with his hands raised and says he needs to tell them something. Now he tells them about the previous burglaries. Leads them to the window in the back, shows them the glass on the floor, and then says, I need to show you something in the basement. He leads the officers down to the basement, 
opens the door to the side room to show him the bodies. The cops say, Holy shit, what the fuck? Maybe. I don't know if they did or not, but they might have. He explains what just happened. Then he says, I figured they're willing to use guns if they steal guns, and I decided that I've got a choice of either shooting or being shot at. Is that right? Here's my take on that, and I'll even back it up with stats. 88% of home invasions are to support a drug habit, and guns are kind of expensive. You could probably pawn or sell a shotgun for a good bit of quick cash if you happen to find one during a robbery. I'm just saying. He said he stayed in the house for the entire 24 hours in between killing them and calling the cops. He also said he was afraid to go upstairs because he thought somebody with a gun might be looking into the windows. You have two guns, dumb fuck! The cops say, Okay, that's fine, I guess. We'll sort this out down at the station. You're super under arrest, by the way. But we want to know something else before we go. Why didn't you call us yesterday? He didn't call the police before now because he didn't want to disturb them on Thanksgiving dinner. How sweet. What a thoughtful gesture. Guys, guys, everybody out there, guys, let's just end the show there today, right? Alex, hit the button. I can't think of a nicer thing to do right, myself. Good I'm night, everybody. No! Don't don't actually hit the button. Get away from it. Huh? D what the shit, man? There's bodies, dude. Call the cops. So he's arrested. They take him down to the station. They Mirandize him and all that according to procedure. Nothing wonky in the paperwork. Except for this weird little tidbit. It's easy to miss. After the murders and subsequent arrest, they process everything down at the station and collect all the evidence and all that procedural bullshit. But this is the most incredible part of this whole thing. There's a CBS News article that mentions it really quickly, in one line of text, like they tried to bury it real quick, and probably with good reason. He moved in with one of his neighbors, John Lang, while he awaited trial. I guess they let him post bail, maybe I missed it, but kinda even still... Why the fuck was he allowed to just walk around outside unsupervised? I get that he's elderly and it's a small town, but based on what we just talked about in great detail, this man is clearly not thinking rationally, and I'd be willing to bet that his neighbor probably has some guns too. What the fuck, Minnesota? Luckily it didn't, but that could have easily gone way worse. Finally, the trial comes around in April of 2014, He's just been allowed to go do whatever and live life like normal for 16 months after murdering two children. Fucking come on, Minnesota. You're as bad as Mark with his damn passwords. I told you it's case sensitive, dipshit. At trial, Byron's main defense was that he used reasonable force in defense of himself in his dwelling. The judge instructed the jury that they had the burden of proving beyond reasonable doubt that he did not use reasonable force. This is where that disconnect I mentioned comes into play. In this instance, the use of reasonable force to neutralize a threat went a little bit too far. Reasonable force does not necessarily equal deadly force. He had all the tactical advantage to get the drop on someone if they were to break in. He had cameras set up around the property so he could see any potential threat approaching. And, oh yeah, the moment he moved his truck, I'll say the moment he grabbed his keys, but the moment he moved his truck around the corner in front of two state troopers' house, that's when it became a premeditated murder trap, and the first shot to both victims would have incapacitated them beyond the point of an immediate threat. Also, not for nothing here, but if you're planning on not being near your vehicle for a while, parking in front of a cop's house, probably a safe place to leave it. They go through the trial, shooting down every angle the defense can lay out to possibly get this guy a break. He brings up prior bad acts, which are ruled as irrelevant because... Not only did it turn out that Nick and Haley weren't the perpetrators of the October break-in, the shoe prints didn't match up, but this is maybe as crazy as letting him walk around for free for over a year. He didn't even know these kids. What the fuck? Didn't have any fucking clue who they were before any of this happened. And to do it that way is so personal. The way he killed them and then talked about it afterwards made it seem like they'd just been terrorizing this man's nutsack with wasps or fire ants for something for just years, but no, no. They were literally just two random kids who accidentally broke into the exact wrong house. The break-in was on purpose, yeah, but to have it end up like this is... Nobody deserves to go out this way. This is fucking horrible. They just needed some guidance and someone to help them figure out how to navigate. They didn't deserve any of that. The jury hears all this, audio included, and deliberates for about three hours, 
but they were more just clarifying everything amongst themselves. Did you just hear the same shit I just heard? And they find him, um, let's see, obviously, guilty as fuck. He's sentenced on two counts each of second-degree murder and first-degree premeditated murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He is currently 74 years old and spends most of his time now at the Oak Park Heights Correctional Facility staring through the six bars that stretch across the sky in the windows where he will probably die. The end. There you have it, everybody. One hell of a wild story from Minnesota. Don't you feel kind of weird right now? Don't you feel kind of gritty, kind of just blah, kind of gray in a gray area? Nobody in this story deserved any of the treatment they received. The two kids, Nick and Haley, they definitely didn't deserve to be killed. Especially like that, they barely did anything wrong. And Byron, honestly, I think he was just a lonely guy who had too much time to sit and stew in his paranoia about national security, and after a lifetime of that being his job, it's probably hard to separate fantasy from reality. And he was a Vietnam veteran, so who knows what level of PTSD may have been happening. But I don't think aside from this happening, he was a particularly violent guy. I mean, maybe, but his background would cost a shitload of money I don't have to look into. It's top secret, and I'm also not putting on those shoes today either. I, I think he just couldn't take it anymore and just snapped. His fear and paranoia got the better of him and wound up killing two kids who just wanted to get stoned and eat some turkey. So happy Thanksgiving, everybody! If you enjoyed that story, or if I made you laugh today, give me five stars on whichever thing, or I guess I should work in a subscribe in here now, too, for the YouTubers, or the YouTubes. Wherever you can to do it for the show, to show a little support if I made you laugh today. You'll be hard-pressed to find a more grateful dude just for listening to me for an hour, or however long this ends up being. I don't know, I haven't checked. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming in and having a laugh with me, or at me today. I don't really care which. What I care about is making you laugh, which I hope you did today. If you have thoughts on how I can do that better, get at me. At FunnyBaldWaiter, over on the Facebook page, now YouTube comments, I guess, wherever. I'm literally the only person working on this show, so any and all feedback will be seen directly by my eyeballs. But that's all I have for you today, folks. I'm going to go assault the shower curtain again and relax. Thanks again, everyone. Stay Stay kind. kind.